I titled the sermon, Treachery in the Temple. Treachery in the Temple. And you'll understand what I mean as we go through these verses. What a contrast to the song of Hannah as we celebrated that last week. The very next verse introduces us to a bigger uh, story. And we can, we can appreciate the song even more when we realize what Hannah was doing in leaving young Samuel in and among the likes of these men at Shiloh. So let's begin with verses 12 through 17. I titled these Godless and Gluttonous Priests. Godless and Gluttonous Priests. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Period. What a sentence in your Bible. What a summary from God himself of these two men. The sons of Eli were worthless men. And then it goes on to say, they did not know the Lord. That, you got to put, put the pieces together. These two men were priests under Eli, who was functioning really as the high priest. And they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. Okay, that's a problem, right? We've got a huge problem on our hands. This, this phrase, worthless men, it means uh, literally sons of Belial, which uh, uh, has connotations of destruction, wickedness, rebellion. This is who these men were and what they did in the office of priest as those who did not know the Lord. You remember when Hannah was being accused by Eli of being drunk, Her response was a similar phrase. She said, I am not one of the worthless women. Same same thing. I'm not a a daughter of Belial. I'm praying here, pouring out my soul. Interestingly enough, that, that Eli would expect that says a little bit about this scene, okay? These worthless men. Now, if you were to go and 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 hire a taxi and he pulls up, you're probably not gonna lean in the passenger window and be like, hey, just want to check before I get in your car. Do you know how to drive? You know, it's like, it's kind of assumed, right? You get on a plane. You're not going to go to the pilot and be like, hey, it's just a quick question. Can you fly? Do you know how to fly? You can see in situations like that, it's so obvious, when you go up to the house of worship, when you go to the only place in Israel that faithful followers of Yahweh would go to worship him, you can see the problem they're running into. The priests who are in office don't know him. They're not saved. They're not walking in the fear of God. They care nothing for his ways, and yet they're the people that you're to go to to function faithfully in obedience to God and have your sins covered with the sacrifices. What a problem this is for Israel, and what a statement of the condition that she is in at this time. What a nightmare and a mess. Priests who did not know the Lord. We will see how this plays out, and it is an ugly scene. Listen to how it goes in verse 13. The custom of the priests, uh, the word custom there can literally be translated justice, and I found that interesting. So the justice of the priests is, this is how they would, they've perverted justice. They're not acting and walking in faithfulness. This was their custom, the custom of the day. When any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Now, don't think uh, boiling, you know, bowl of stew and a fork. 
Think pitchfork, okay? Think this is a large forked instrument because we're talking about large sacrifices being given. So he come with a, a, a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take, most literally, would take in himself or for himself. He would eat it. It would be taken from the worshipers, taken from the Lord. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. This is a godless practice, a godless justice, as it were, that was being practiced there. Greed and gluttony ruled the day. It was unashamed greed, unrestrained gluttony. How much meat can a guy eat? you got to raise the question. These guys must have grown fat on the robbery, the thievery of God's sacrifices. Greed and gluttony. Now, I'm glad that only happened back then. I'm glad that that doesn't happen in our day, right? Oh, how many stories can be told. I've heard even from some of you from, from experiences in this county where you have experienced tremendous greed and pressure as it relates to that which you bring in offering to the Lord in worship. That is not okay. That is not okay. But it is not a surprise that it does continue in our day. What is also something we need to be aware of is that there are pastors in thousands of churches that have had their doors open today and worshipers who have come in to these churches and those pastors do not know the Lord. They, they are not saved. They do not honor Him. They don't seek to follow the Scriptures. They stand up and they give words, the words of men, in place of the Word of God. And they rob and, and corrupt and they steal and they destroy. And if left unchecked, they will lead thousands to the fires of hell. Be discerning, believers. Don't watch every preaching that you see on YouTube as if those pastors know the Lord. We must be discerning. Anyone can have a YouTube channel these days, right? Anyone can post online. It's more dangerous than ever. Greed and gluttony. Now, in Deuteronomy 18.3, God made very clear what the priest was to receive. It, he, it's, it's not like he wasn't clear about this. This is very spelled out, very clear, over and over. Uh, this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks, that is of the, the, like the jawbone area, and the stomach. Now the first one, I'm down with. The second two, I'm like, eh, I don't know. What am I going to do with the stomach? And the cheeks, maybe it's flavoring, maybe it's, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, the shoulder, cool. We can do that. We can do something with that. These are what the priest was to be given in each of these sacrifices. And there, there's others as well of the grain offering and the peace offering, different, different offerings that were given. As we went through Leviticus, we saw that the altar of God was here. But oftentimes the priest would be supplied and cared for and sustained through the giving in worship of the Lord. This was being completely ignored. But that's not a surprise. They don't know the Lord. Why would they care what he has commanded at all? 
It gets worse than that. Apparently, there were seasons or times uh, where this would be practiced as well. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's very blunt. Give meat for the priest to roast. That's an interesting phrase there, to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man re- replied, knowing this is wrong, knowing this is not okay, this goes against the commandment of God, if he replied and said, let them burn the fat first, then take as much as you wish. He's trying to find a way through the compromise to honor the Lord. Then the servant would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Imagine this. Functioning under the authority of these priests, these compromised, godless, gluttonous priests, there were those who were doing their bidding, and they would shake down the worshipers and take from them their sacrifice before the fat could be burned and God could be honored in the very precise sequence of events that he commanded. You can't just go to the church down the road. This is it. It's Shiloh. There's only one place to go. And when you go, here they are. What do you do? How do you honor the Lord? You can see why this is such a problem. Boiled or barbecued. Now, I know on a, on a flavor side, I know where I'm going. I'm barbecue all day, right? Boiled meat, that's interesting, okay? But remember, God's people couldn't have bacon at this point. So the Lord is not chiefly concerned with the flavor in their mouth. He is chiefly concerned with the honor of him in their hearts. And he is giving commandments that make that evident or not. And in these men, they say, we'll take the barbecue. We, we want to feed our appetite, and we could care less what God thinks of it. There are men in pulpits who do the same. There are ministries who continue in this legacy of godlessness. I watched a video. I wish I hadn't now. I watched a video of Benny Hinn taking his jacket and slinging it at people and doing this whole knocking them down bit. They're falling over. And I had never heard the audio of him singing about the holiness of God as he's doing this. He's singing about how God is holy and directing the worship team. Friends, godlessness, shysters, shakedowns, greed, and judgment. Know this. This continues in our day, and you've got to be aware. Not everything that you see on TV is church or honoring to God. Be discerning once again. Taking the offering by force. Can you imagine if we had people stationed at the door, <laughs> the, the doors where you came in this morning and they stopped you on your way in and they're like, give us the cash. Load, load the bucket. We're, we're taking an offering. It's not voluntary. If you want to come in and worship, hand it over. I'd be looking for lightning bolts, honestly. I, that's, that is abhorrent 
to God. Hmm. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord. It's not theirs. It's the offering of the Lord. They treated it with contempt. They don't care. They scorn it. Whatever. We want the meat, and we're going to take it if need be. Now, I, there's a mystery here that I still can't quite figure out. Uh, Eli is old. He's a very old man. And his sons are not old. They are described as young men. Now, they're not as young as Samuel, obviously. But they are, they are young. And so what is going on there? I don't know. But I do know this. If San, uh, Eli, If Eli dies as an old man, which is coming soon, and these men continue in their post, they're going to be there a long time. Godless, pagan, corrupt, practicing abominable behaviors, and shaking God's people down in the house of worship. Something has to happen. And God has, has, has put up with this long enough. Greed, gluttony, godlessness, abuse of power, corruption, and extortion. Do you ever wonder, Lord, what is it that holds you back when these things take place? When these things are happening, why do you not just, in that moment, just drop them dead? Drop them dead right there. Why? It is the purpose of God, and sometimes it is His very judgment to allow such things. To bring judgment and to store up judgment for those who practice these things. But know this, every sin will be accounted for because all takes place before the eyes of a God who sees all. He knows all. Every single sin. Now, here's the thing though. This is just not a concern about those things that happen out there. Because we would be foolish to think that there is no danger in our own hearts or lives for these expressions to find some outlet. So as we worship today, be reminded, oh, friends, we, all of us, have an inclination in our heart, an echo of depravity that would be in our heart toward greed, toward gluttony, toward godless decisions, just kind of scorning the God who is, toward mishandling, abusing power, to corruption or extortion, and the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And so it's right for us to look in and say, Lord, just like show me my heart. I want to guard my heart against these things. Keep us faithful to you as we come to worship. I don't want to come just skipping into to the house of the Lord without some preparation, some, some confession of sin, really aware, Lord, where am I? As I sing these words, is my heart where it needs to be? It's very possible to have a little Hophni or Phineas expression in our lives. I was thinking of a, of a potluck one time. We had a guy who, who made a really yummy dish, at least in his, in his mind. It was super yummy. And, and, and so he put it in there and then he was going around person by person and saying, did you try the, the whatever it was? What did you think? Tell me what you think. Oh, it was good. Thank you. No, but no, no. Did you like it? Did, was it good? And I was struck by this. I'm like, I've never noticed this before. And then he came to me and he came to everyone at my table. And I'm thinking, wait a second, something's going on here that's not okay. 
there is a pride that is being expressed and a hunger for the praise of man from a potluck at church. It can happen. It can sneak in to our fellowship. It can sneak into our worship. Our worship team, we always remind them as we take the stage, we pray before we come out, Lord, guard our hearts. Help us to come with this right goal. You are in view. We come for you, for your glory, for your praise. When we come into the pulpit, any of us elders, as we preach, Lord, we are here for you. This is for your praise. May we be faithful to follow his ways and walk in the fear of God. Now, look at the contrast that the, the author gives here in 1 Sam. It's a beautiful storytelling, the way he, he kind of weaves in a thread now of contrast in these coming verses. The blessing of honoring God. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and, and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Okay, so in contrast to this, you have this faithful worship of, of a family. It's sure the family dynamic is messy, but hearts in here are in the right place. I think Elkanah is coming to lead his family to the Lord in worship, at least to the best of their ability to bring sacrifices and then look at the connection here with Samuel. Three things stand out. Number one, Samuel is ministering before the Lord. Where is his focus? Is it on the cauldron and, and, and getting the meat? Is he focused on Hophnes, uh, uh, Phineas and Hophni and, and following them? No, he is there for the Lord. He's wearing a linen ephod, which would have been kind of like, wow, look at the little guy with the the little priestly thing going. That's unique. Now, I don't think he was functioning as a priest on his own yet. He was operating under Eli's uh, uh, oversight, uh, thankfully. And then he was also robed in love, a love that, that his mom, Hannah, would make for him with great love each year, a special little robe for him to wear. Just robed in love, every stitch lovingly given, thinking of him, praying for him. Oh, Lord, protect him. Keep him from those boys. Keep him from the evil that's all around him. Help him walk in your obedience and the fear of you. And she would bring him this gift. And then think, if you're Samuel, what it's like. Oh, man, I get to see my mom. I get to see my dad. They get to come. Oh, thank you. It's a little tight, but I don't know. It's loving. It's great. This was a special moment for the family in the context of worship. How awesome is that? God at the center, the family flourishing, honoring him. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman, that is Hannah, for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home, and indeed the Lord visited Hannah. And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. This is a woman who was barren for all those years. And now God has seen fit not only to bless her with the gift of a son for which she prayed, but in honoring that, he blesses over and over and over again. 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. 
And then this, this is answers to countless prayers. The boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. God was there to grow this young boy. What a special thing. Faithful worship, abundant blessings, answered prayers. Oh, how good it is to worship and honor God, friends. To walk in the fear of Him. To live in obedience to Him. Just call your heart to that. Whenever it is inclined to turn to the right or the left, oh no, the best blessing is in obedience and faithfulness to Him. Hmm. Now we go back to see another point of contrast here. Verse 22, I, I call this soft words and hard hearts. Soft words, hard hearts. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This is a level of detail that is shocking. It should should absolutely blow our minds. The the level of of searing of conscience, the, the blatant disregard for God and his word. To, to, to bring to the women, by the way, the women who were here were there in, in holy and set-apart ways to serve and clean and, and keep the, the entrance of the tent of meeting. You see this even tracking back uh, in uh, God's people early on after the exodus and, and, and the, the whole tabernacle was put together. So they're there doing this faithfully or maybe not. Maybe they are there showing great disregard for God because the priests who have oversight over them care nothing for him either. However it goes down, whether by force, which could likely be the case, or by coercion or whatever it is, there there is a brothel basically taking place at the house of the Lord. They have turned the holy place of God at Shiloh into a brothel. All of Israel should at this point stone them to death. This is a death penalty. This this kind of behavior, this is this consequences for this kind of blatant sin at this time. Hmm. Rampant depravity. You don't get here overnight. You know, I mean, like really, this kind of depravity is a spiraling effect. It begins with a look, glance, unguarded eyes maybe a fantasy, a thought that's fed, and then flirtation, interaction, and then what? It's never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied, and on and on and on, and it will spiral down to the depths, as Romans 1, Romans 1 makes clear. And this is happening where people are coming to worship. Eli goes to his sons and says to them, why do you do such things? Now, is that a question? Like, I don't, is that really what you're going to say? You're going to, you're going to, that's what you're going to ask? Hey guys, um, just, why are you doing this? It feels weak, and it is. For I hear of you doing, uh, of your evil uh, dealings from all of these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now, it's possible that that was just a description of, of, of his experience. It's also possible that Eli is concerned about his reputation in these words. I, I don't like what people are saying about you, my sons, and 
you know, by inference, me. What about God? Well, at least he goes to this place. And this is the closest he gets to calling them to repent. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? What is he saying? He's not trying to distinguish you know, sin. The, the reality is that every single sin is against the Lord. Right? Let's be clear about that. However, in this scenario, at this time and place, when the priests are sinning against God in this way, they, they're, they're hardening, they're scorning the very sacrifices which are their only hope of forgiveness. It's the equivalent of, of basically stiff-arming Jesus and, and saying, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm sick of this. I, I'm done with this. If you stiff-arm Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Guaranteed. There, there is no other place to find salvation. And so it's like Eli is saying, don't scorn your only hope of forgiveness. You make light of the sacrifices. You turn them into to, to just fests for your appetite. You're condemning yourselves. Here's the problem. These are words without action. It's like the parent that counts to three and then just keeps on going. A counting parent is not a concern for a wayward child, a sinning child. You can have a parent just count until they're blue in the face. It does nothing. You have to at some point draw a line in the sand and say, consequence happens. Or you have not loved your child. Eli fails to take them out of the priesthood. At bare minimum, he should have said, you're done. You are done. Get out of here with this rampant wickedness. We are going to purge this house and clean it for the Lord. What we find is that they should have died. They, they should have died for these sins that they were committing. In fact, we'll see in 1 Samuel 3.13, listen to how the Lord condemns Eli in his weakness in dealing with his sons. I declare to him, that is to Eli, the Lord says, I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. We are past the point of just talking. It's time to bring consequence. Action needs to happen. And Eli doesn't do it. Why? Well, if this was our day, I could hear the, the mantra, hey, family first, man. Family first. Never before God. Never before God. Don't ever make an idol of family. Always obey the Lord. Always follow Him and honor Him. Family should not be first. This is His error. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Whoa! All of a sudden, we find ourselves in the deep end of the pool, right? That is a mind-blowing statement right there. They, that is, um, what's their names? Phineas, Hophni and Phineas. I keep forgetting. Hophni and Phineas would not listen to the voice of Eli, their father. Why? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Okay? Now, we come into this place where these two things, these two realities kind of crash into each other. 
God is indeed absolutely sovereign, and we are absolutely responsible. That is culpable. We are responsible for that rebellion of which we have transgressed against God. Well, how can that be? Well, the Bible doesn't have a problem saying they're both true, and at the place where they meet, there may be some mystery, but here's the deal. The Bible teaches both. They are both totally true. You say, well, well if God's hardening their hearts, then, then how can they be held to account for them? Let's talk about the hardening of hearts. The, these two have sinned themselves to the place of no return. They have reached the point where God is giving them over to their sins. You hear this language a lot, especially in Romans chapter 1. Therefore, it says, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. Okay? It says it repeatedly in Romans chapter 1. What is that? That's judgment. That is a sentence. You are going to, to basically destroy yourself. Here's how to think of this. God is not hardening a heart that would otherwise be soft. He is not. He is lifting the restraints on a hard heart that will, left to itself, only dive all the more into depravity. Think of the biggest dump truck you can imagine filled with piles of sin. This is the situation for Hophni and Phinehas. They find themselves on a hill, pointed down, away from any hope. They're, they're scorning the only hope of their forgiveness. And in that, they choose it freely, willingly, and that's what they want. And the Lord says, okay, I lift the brakes. I will lift any restraint. I will take the brakes off of your lives such that you will destroy yourselves and I will sentence you to death under the righteous judgment that you have stored up. You will die. Friends, it is important for us to remember how serious our sin is. God can indeed, in the life of a rebellious, hard-hearted sinner, give a person over to their sins and say, to hell with you. That's reality. It shows up in a number of places. God is just in doing this. He is righteous in doing this. In fact, the fact that he waits at all to do this is evidence of his kindness and grace. Now, in contrast to that, look at verse 26. The author of Samuel is just dropping this in. So you have this, this giving over, and then in the very same you know, location, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in grace, that is, favor with the Lord and also with man. Well, why is that? Well, I, just imagine if Samuel came to help you. He's honoring the Lord. He knows the Lord. He's walking in obedience to the Lord. He reveres the Lord. A very different experience with this young boy than with these godless priests. These words are quoted almost directly describing Jesus as he grew in the New Testament. Beautiful verses. Now, Samuel was, was a sinner still, right? So he's growing even as a sinner. Christ grew with no sin. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. 
Beautiful contrast. Why did Samuel grow in this way? God, the sovereign one, is growing and softening a heart and bringing faith and obedience and fruit in Samuel's life, even as he's saying judgment in the very same compound for those who rail against him. This is our God. I'll just say this. Behold the kindness and severity of our God. He is the one we worship. Now, rejection and ruin, these are fascinating verses, uh, the 27 through the end of the chapter. Rejection and ruin. There came a man of God to Eli. Now, just stop there. Don't read on yet. This is a prophet, a, a nameless prophet. We don't know who this man is. We don't know a thing about him outside of the message that he brought to Eli on behalf of the Lord. And we know this. Every single word he spoke was fulfilled exactly as he said. So here is a a man that someday we will meet and he'll be like, I'm that guy. I was the one that the Lord sent to Eli. That's cool. The nameless prophet speaks. He says, thus says the Lord, did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar? Notice the my I, me, my, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So he's pointing him back. He's saying, remember the glorious deliverance that I accomplished and remember the incredible grace that I set upon your your family line. To serve me, not your own appetites. Hmm. He goes on, basically saying, if, if this is the case, and it is, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? Who is the sovereign in these words? And then he says this, you scorn my sacrifices and you honor your sons above me. What, a, what an indictment. By fattening yourselves, not themselves, all of you, yourselves, on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. You know, when God judged Eli, he was so fat when he fell over in shock of his boy's death that he broke his neck under his own weight. That's poetic justice. God did that. He says, Eli, you're fattening yourselves off of what's mine. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be, and the ESV says, lightly esteemed. I think it's far more intense than that. Uh, Cursed is what he's saying. Those who despise me shall be cursed. I will oppose them at every turn. He's removing the priesthood from this line and handing it off to the fourth son of Aaron who will rise, be raised up to be a faithful priest. 
Honor and obedience. Look at the core of the Christian life, friends. Honor and obey. Honor, esteem, treasure, value, fear, right? In, 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 in trembling and awe, fear, and then obey Him. He is the sovereign. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Your future generations are going to die young. That judgment will fall upon them. Now, Now, just be clear, because of their sin as well, right? When God brings judgment on a family like this, he is judging not just this, this, the sin of the father, but the effect of that sin in his judgment is going to echo down through the generations such that under their own sin, they will die at the hand of God and not live out years. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared. Okay, you're like, well, at least one of us is going to live. Well, what, what, spared to what? Spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Whoa. Um, is worship a big deal to God? Is, is, is this an overreaction? <clears throat> Do you think God is maybe being a little too, too judgy here? Remember, when we see the hand of God fall in judgment, it is precise and it is retributive judgment. It is perfect in its application. He never just loses it and flies off the handle. Never. Not a once has he ever done that. Nor does he do what Eli did, fail to fully punish. This is our God. He is a God to be feared and obeyed. There are some in our day who make light of him and scorn him. And, oh, if God in his grace does not reach down and turn them from their wicked, hard-hearted rebellion, they will be punished for every act of evil forever. God is devastating the family line of Eli. We, we find this in its fulfillment. There's all kinds of points along the way that we will see this unfold, but, but here's where the, the fulfillment is, is finalized. So Solomon, so we've got Saul, then David, then Solomon. Solomon expelled Abathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. All these years later, Abathar is the one left alive to cry his eyes out, and he is finally banished and slain. Sons of Aaron, four, the first two were killed by the Lord. They brought strange fire. The third, that's where Eli's line comes. It is now given to the fourth son of Aaron, and Zodak is going to be raised up uh, to be the priest faithful. Look, there's good news. Uh, Actually, we're not there yet. We're still in judgment. Verse 34, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. 
just to make sure that they know that it's God. This is not just natural causes. This is not just, oh, it just so happened. No, he's like, it's me, and I'm going to prove it. They're, they're going to fall on the same day. And it turns out, we'll see in chapter 4, all three of them die on the same day. But verse 35, oh, in his judgment, God shows his mercy. Look, he's not, he's not just ringing them up and throwing them to the side. No, there's hope. He continues his redemptive work. I will raise up for myself. Note this. For who? For God, for his glory. I will raise up for myself, God says, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart, God says, and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. What a pointer that is. So you see this unfold when these three are taken out. Samuel steps into a role in in some way, shape, or form as the the judge that God has raised up to shepherd and, and lead Israel, the faithful priest in that sense. But then it's also pointing here to to Zadok, who is a wonderful, faithful priest that God raises up and he honors the Lord. What beautiful contrast. But still, he is not a perfect high priest. These words ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the one who is without sin, who when he lays his life down is not paying for his own sins. He becomes the sacrifice to pay for my sins and the sins of all who trust in him. I love to see glimpses of our Savior in the Old Testament. Here's one. Mm. Verse 36, this is poetic justice. Listen to how God brings it to a close. Everyone who is left in your house, Eli, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in as one of the priests, uh, in, in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. I just, I just need a crumb. That's all I need. Just give me a crumb. So under the judgment of God, he turns the gluttons to beggars. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And it does echo back then to the prayer that this chapter began with when Hannah sang, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And know this, good shepherd, he will. He will. He sees today with the same eye. He knows all things. Never misses a single sin. So our response this morning, how serious is God about his glory and honor? If nothing else we take away from this chapter, we should, we should walk away saying, you know, God is really serious. When he says come and bring your worship to me, and he calls us to come and worship him, he is not playing games. He is deadly serious about it. He says in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Faithful worshipers, that's what he seeks, and that's what he creates 
through Christ when the gospel lands in the hearts of sinners like you and me. He makes us worshipers, sanctifies us and refines us. Hmm. I would say it this way, because he is sovereign, we are responsible. Sometimes we get, we get to this, this thing, we start pitting absolute sovereignty against human responsibility as if it's like, well, maybe it's this or maybe it's this. No, it's both. But here's the thing to see it. Remember, it's because he is sovereign that we are responsible. He is Lord. He is the absolute sovereign. He made us. He wrote the rules. We break the rules. We are responsible before him. Praise God that he has given a way for sinners to be saved. So I would just point you today, I don't know where you stand with the Lord, but I would encourage you if, you, if your life is kind of a display of a scorn of Jesus Christ, like, I want to live the way I want to live. I want to do the things that are fun for me, and, and I will make room for you someday maybe. If you live your life to dishonor him or basically to forget about him, if you are walking, blaspheming his name, defying his commandments, you are doomed. You are doomed. Know this. There is a way of escape. But don't wait. Don't wait. Don't continue down that road. Turn. Turn today. Listen, I don't want to give soft words like Eli. Know this, if you don't turn, you will go to hell. There is consequence for your sin. But good news, there is a God who has shown his love by making a way for sinners to be forgiven. So repent of your sins. Turn and trust in him. Believe in his name. And you will be forgiven today. Today. And then walk in the fear of the Lord. Honor and obey him. God doesn't play games with his worship, and neither should we. Let's pray. Oh God, we delight in you, the God of all glory. You are the only one to whom we are to worship in this way. You are the one who is worthy of our praise. We confess, oh God, our hearts are fickle, and so easily we, we, we are prone to, to wander to the right or to the left. Lord, Latch on to us. Hold our hearts. Point us in, in faithfulness and obedience to you. Cause us to walk in the fear of you. That we would honor you and revere you and delight in you and worship you faithfully, oh Lord, in a day where all around us there is corruption and darkness and wickedness. Raise us up to shine bright and to call others to the same to the light of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your salvation. And we delight, O oh God, both in your kindness and we see and affirm your rightful severity in judging rebellion and sin. We give praise to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.